Welcome to Add Passion and Stir, Big Chefs, Big Ideas. This is the Share Our Strength podcast about people who are changing the world. I'm your host, Billy Shore. It's amazing when you realize how central food is to so many things that we care about. It affects our health. We see kids with nutritionally related problems, many of them overweight, even though they're undernourished. It affects our ability to learn. She had to make sure she had lunch in the classroom because at the end of the day, that was going to be all she got. Food security affects our strength as a nation. Within arm's reach are people who are hungry, and there is a anxiety and a stigma attached to that. Dr. Emily Chinitz is a psychologist and a champion of young children who live in underserved areas. How do you get people to understand that it's not just about hard work, that, you know, their early experiences from a, a really young age, you know, put them at an uneven playing field than, than other people are. Dr. Chinitz works at the Center for Child Health and Resiliency and for the Children's Health Fund. She joins me and legendary restaurateur and philanthropist Danny Meyer to talk about the importance of helping very young children gain the foothold they need for a healthy, productive life. Danny Meyer is the founder of Union Square Cafe, Gramercy Tavern, Shake Shack, and other restaurants under the brand of the Union Square Hospitality Group. And he's also a board member of Share Our Strength. Danny, Emily, thanks for being here with us today. Thank you. So nice to be here. I wanted to start by us getting to know each other a little bit better. I've known Danny forever, so I'm going to come to you second, Danny. But Emily, really curious how you got into this work. I'm so fascinated by your work because at Share Our Strength, we're involved in making sure kids have what they need in the most basic sense of the food that they need to succeed, the breakfast they need at school, uh, summer meals. But we don't even start reaching kids till they're in school and about five years old. And I know that you've got a passion for early childhood development. So I'd just like to hear where it started, how you got into the field, and how that led to what you're doing now. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I always wanted to work with children that I knew from uh, a young age. Um, and through my graduate training, I worked in a lot of underserved areas in New York City, um, in a lot of health centers and hospitals, uh, and was really finding that um, you know children with mental health issues uh, often had a lot of um, adverse experiences from a young age. And uh, it was really, really difficult to intervene when kids were older, when they had already gone through a lot of really difficult things. Um, and, you know, my interest in working with children when they were young really came from knowing that, you know, a lot can be done if we can either prevent these difficult things from happening or support children and families. Um, you know, when kids are still really young, you know, zero to three or zero to five is the time of the most brain development. It's such a critical time in the development of young children. And if you really can make an impact from an early age, um, you know, you just, it's just a really good place to invest your, your time and resources because we know that um, these, the impact of these experiences are really persistent and profound you know, throughout the lifespan. So you went to school and became a psychologist? That's right, yeah. And where, where, where was your first job? Was it here in New York? Uh, yes. Yeah, so um, my first job was at North Shore LIJ. It was my first training experience. Um, I was there for two years throughout my training, um, and then I worked at Bronx Children's Psychiatric Center, which um, is a place where children go for long-term hospitalization. So after they've, you know, had short-term hospitalizations because of, you know, pretty severe mental illness, um, and you know they they need really longer-term, more intensive care, um, and I think that was a really uh, important experience for me to really just see, you know, the the significant impact of of trauma, you know, when I say trauma, I mean, you know, experiences of abuse, of neglect, um, witness to violence, uh, you know, having a, a parent with a mental illness or a parent who had been incarcerated um, for long periods of time and children who had multiple, multiple foster care placements, um, 
you know, understanding that you know now these kids had really, really severe issues and were hospitalized for a really long time, and kind of understanding that one of the, the most common threads of this was, uh, the, you know, that they had had such difficult childhoods. Um, and so that made me interested in getting, you know, more specialized training in childhood traumatic stress. So I did that at a place called um, the Trauma Center, Metro West Behavioral Health Center up in Massachusetts, where um, my work was really only focused on working with um, kids who've had uh, traumatic experiences and who either um, were continuing to be in difficult situations or who um, had now been adopted in families but were still showing uh, a lot of signs of a lot of dysregulation and a lot of you know, behavior problems and attachment issues because of their early experiences. So I worked a lot with um, you know, families and helping them understand these behaviors, how to help kids you know, regulate better, how to you know, form trusting uh, positive relationships with caregivers and with peers and you know, that all helps them do well in school and then helps them you know, do better yep. as adults. Good. Well, I'm going to come back and ask you a little bit more sure. about the kids and the families you actually see, what they present with, what kind of issues they're facing, what their community is like. Uh, but I want to turn to Danny, because Danny, you've got such an interesting pedigree on this. Um, most folks probably know you as a restaurateur, uh, extremely successful business person, uh, hopefully also involved in the community as you have been from Madison Square Park to Share Our Strength, City Harvest, other organizations you've been involved in. But you've got an interesting pedigree in the early childhood space. Um, your grandfather was also a very successful businessman, Irving Harris, who was probably, um, you know, at the earliest possible stages understanding the need to invest in children and became a well-known leader. Uh, just before you came into the room, I mentioned to uh, Dr. Chinnitz, to Emily, that uh, your grandfather was Irving Harris. And of course, she knew Irving Harris. She knew the work of the Irving Harris Foundation, um, probably the Ounce of Prevention Fund, uh, which is one of the things that they're involved in. Um, so I'd love to just both hear about not just your uh, journey in business, um, which is probably fairly well known to a lot of people, but how you decided that that business background could actually impact um, communities and children and how that ties to you know what you learned from your grandfather. Well, I, th I think my, my grandfather was an amazing mentor to me from a business standpoint. Um, he, he lived till he was 94 years old. In Chicago? In Chicago. Um, but in addition to that, I think for the last 40 years of his life, so from the time he was 54 forward, um, which was most of my life at that point, um, he had really dedicated at least... 75% of his time to philanthropy. And he took the same approach to philanthropy that he always had to business, which was to truly look for ROI. And, and so- For return on investment. Return on investment. You just mentioned uh, the ounce of prevention fund, and that was really his entire philosophy. And he thought that, um, he thought that investing in kids at the very, very earliest time in their lives would yield the greatest return on his investment. It's absolutely impacted me. And then when Share Our Strength came into my life, which was really quite serendipitous, um, because back then it, I learned about Share Our Strength because of one of its corporate sponsors, Bon Appetit Magazine. I had never heard of it. And I learned about Share Our Strength because with Union Square Cafe, uh, back in, I think this was in 1989 or 1988, yep. if I'm not mistaken. Maybe 
Yeah. Well, I think it's 1988. I think it was 1988 because Chef Michael Romano had just joined the restaurant. We were invited to serve our food at an event at which Bon Appetit would be entertaining clients and this organization, Share Our Strength, would make hopefully some money from it. And I met you and, and your sister Debbie that night and was completely uh, interested in what you were doing, which really jived with a lot of the stories I had grown up with hearing about ending hunger, but also at its, at its root. And it's, it's been my way of combining my love for food, which my grandfather never had, with, with an interest that he did give me, which is that if you can make the right investments at the right time in people who need them the most, it really, really can uh, you know, yield many-fold what you put into it. Well, the reason I want to actually come back to Dr. Chinitz is, uh, you know, what I think is really fascinating, and you probably are grounded in this, uh, Emily, more than we are, is if you think about uh, what we've learned since the time of Irving Harris. So here's a man ahead of his time understanding this important return on investment on early childhood, but almost all of the science since then has just affirmed by a factor of a thousand how important that was because we now know that you know kids brains like the literally the physiology the architecture the structure of their brains are shaped by these early childhood investments we make some of it has to do with nutrition some of it has to do with stimulation some of it has to do with the give and take between a child and a caregiver um, tell us a little bit about how the science of that informs your work now yeah, I mean, I think uh, now understanding more how these experiences, how early experiences impact the brain gives us a lot of important information and kind of helps, you know, steer interventions. So um, when, you know, kids are basically, their brains are like sponges. So all of the input that they're getting, all of the experiences that they're getting, you know, shapes how their brain development develops. So if you think about, you know, healthy development, you think about um, a child who, uh, you know, has at least one, um, available, consistent caregiver. A baby cries, they, you know, parent notices that they're crying, they pick up the baby, they provide some comfort, um, you know, that provides the basis of, you know, regulation strategies. A baby cries and no one is there to pick them up, the baby cries, cries more, and then eventually, you know, stops crying and realizes that, you know, there aren't going to be people to um, pick them up. So all those things shapes, we have this fight or flight response, this kind of, um, uh, danger alarm that we have. So when kids have had a lot of, you know, stressful experiences, the brain adapts to those experiences. So the brain starts to realize that, okay, when these stressful things happen, I have to, um, you know, act quickly. Uh, I, I can't take the time to kind of use my prefrontal cortex, a part of our brain that's, you know, uniquely human that helps us um, with complex thinking and logic to, you know, to think about what's going on to decide how to act. You know, it just is safer. It's more adaptive for a child to kind of react um, more immediately based on, you know, this danger response because that's what's, what's going to keep them safe. So, um, you know, we have kids who have a lot of difficult experiences who, you know, their, their, be their brains and their behaviors adapt to do whatever is going to, you know, work to keep them safe. So uh, even if they're not in danger, you know, any, any perceived threat is responded to, you know, very significantly even if there isn't real danger there. So we are a general clinic population, though I think because of our location and because it is a very poverty-affected community, um, we see a disproportionate amount of, of people who have had early childhood trauma, um, who are dealing with 
the stre- all the stressors that are associated with poverty. Early childhood, meaning like even before they're three years old? Uh, yeah, often. I mean, and again, that that has a broad definition. So it could be that they have a, you know, a caregiver who's very stressed and then that caregiver is depressed. And then when you have a depressed parent, um, the parent is less available for the child. So then their early experiences um, are affected by that. Or um, they're living in a shelter uh, in a really, you know, or there's, I just started seeing a woman um, who's a single mother who lives in a one bedroom apartment with her six children. Um, She was being harassed at work, so now she's out of work, so she's not working. Uh, the children's fathers are not involved, and they don't pay child support. Um, her, She doesn't have good social supports in her life. Um, so, I mean, those are the kinds of stressors that are you know very common in the, in the families and, that we work. And what would the children be presenting with, typically, her children? Like, what, what would their needs be? Um, we get a lot of complaints about behavior problems. Um, so kids who tantrum, you know, their kids aren't listening to them, um, a lot of ADHD, which often, because of what I was mentioning about the effect that trauma can have on the brain, or all of the stress can have on the brain, that a lot of the times kids present with attention problems or hyperactivity. It's really hypervigilance because, again, it's part of what keeps them safe is to be able to kind of be aware of their surroundings and look around. They don't have the, the feeling of safety that they can kind of just sit in one place and calmly read their book. Um, so a lot of questions about you know attention problems and hyperactivity, um, you know a lot of anxiety and depression. I would say probably that's the most common thing. And in kids, depression can look like irritability, um, you know difficulties with relationships with people. And you can see the cycle mm-hmm. developing. I mean, as you're talking, I can just you know you can almost see generation after generation that's going to be impacted by this. Yeah. I mean, my training has mostly been with children and adolescents, but I do work with adults now. And part of what I do is kind of conceptualize them as, you know, bigger kids, (laughs) because what happens is these kids have all these experiences and these kids grow up to be adults who then have children. And then the cycle is really repeated, um, not because adults want to repeat those cycles, but because it's, it's all they know. And we really learn from our experiences. So if you think about, you know, how you parent your kids now, Probably a lot of that is because of, you know, how you were parented and, and what you know about, you know, how parents interact with kids. So if, if those are the examples that you have as a child, um, you know, a lot of the times, not all the time, some people are really amazingly resilient. And that's what is so special about this work is that people's resiliency, you, you just can't imagine the adversity that people face if you're not exposed to um, you know certain communities and cer- people with certain experiences. Uh, the things that people go through on a day-to-day basis and how they can still, you know, have loving relationships and be great parents despite all of their adversity, I think is really inspiring and how, you know, kids can, um, can exist, you know, can survive all the things that they go through, I think is really, really amazing. I think that's what makes the work so inspiring. Thanksgiving is right around the corner and it's traditionally a time of gratitude and reflection and one in which many of us ask ourselves how we can be helping others in our community. At Share Strength, we've come up with a very simple but fun way for you to get involved. It's called Friendsgiving. To find out all the steps for success in hosting a Friendsgiving party, go to nokidhungry.org. And just imagine being at Thanksgiving dinner while kids in our country are thanking you. So Danny Meyer, as somebody who gets return on investment, gets early investment in children, you got it on your own, but you also had the benefit of a grandfather who was a leader in this. Um, 
you've been such an effective evangelist with the business community, not just in New York City, but nationally. How do you get people to care about these issues? I've seen you do it uh, on a large stage, and I've seen you do it in a small back room of a restaurant trying to get the right opinion leaders focused on this. What's been your strategy of how do you use your, your kind of your business success to pivot to have this impact in the community? I try to model it, and I also think that maybe loosely connected to the fight or flight um, part of our lizard brain or wherever that lives is the pain and pleasure part of our brain. And I, I do believe that rather than telling someone to eat their oatmeal because it's good for them, um, I think that if you really think they should eat more oatmeal, make the best tasting oatmeal they've ever had in their life, and their pleasure principle will take over. I think people in general want less pain in their lives and more pleasure in their lives, whether they admit it or not. And so I think that with respect to taking a position on social issues, I've tried to both through example um, and then a willingness to share what has worked with others show that doing the right thing is actually more profitable. Doing the right thing actually leads to more customers. Doing the right thing leads to attracting better employees that are more fun to work with, which is pleasurable. You don't need me to tell you, but human beings tend to be tribal animals. The tribes that, that I grew up with largely don't exist at the same level anymore. You know, um, which political party do you affiliate with? Which um, church or synagogue do you belong to? Which Rotary or Elks or Lions Club do you go to? It's not that those classic organizing tribes don't exist anymore, but all you have to do is walk around New York City and churches are turning into nightclubs and, you know, they're just, they just don't exist in the same way. And so I think that maybe next to your family in terms of an affiliation, I think where you work is one of the strongest badges of your tribe. And so I think that organizations that understand that a tribe needs things to believe in. Um, and I think an, a company that can say a great reason for someone like you to want to work here is that you're going to get to work with other people who care about doing the right thing and who believe that doing the right thing is in our own self-interest. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I couldn't, I, I, I just couldn't say more strongly that as both as both doing the right thing, but also as a very self-interested act, which is to say, I want to work with people who care about things over and beyond the thing that they're being paid to do. And I believe that that's going to lead to a better business. And so you, Emily, were talking about resilience. And so here you've got kids who come from these very difficult circumstances. They're not kids today. They're adults. They're working in a great organization but they feel so connected to this issue. And I'm just wondering, so I think of them as an example of resilience, but I'm wondering for the, for the little younger children that you're treating, how do you think about their future? Do you, are you hopeful about it? Do you see them 
facing almost insurmountable obstacles and or you know just trying to um, provide as much care as you can or just how do you see it because you you see these kids every day these kids that you know maybe are working in Shake Shack today um, you know you saw them 15 years ago they're up against a lot um, we were just talking the other day at a meeting about kind of what what are the factors in resiliency and um, it's a very interesting area and that you know always something we're trying to think about I mean I think it is possible I mean if I didn't think that there was any chance that people can overcome their experiences I think it would be a much more depressing type of work and I, I don't find it to be depressing um, you know I think you look for small changes um, small successes uh, at the beginning especially with you know very young kids, but you know, I do think it's possible to to not be fully defined by your experience. Um, but you need a lot of support. And so, when you say you see progress, you see progress in these children and families starting to uh, avail themselves of these supports, or you see their behaviors changing. You see them getting physically healthier. Mm -hmm. what, what healthier? What does the progress look like? Right. I mean, I. I think of all of this as pretty long-term work, so it's not something that you see necessarily week to week or month to month. But you know, if you over the long term, um, yeah, you can see kids start to be able to regulate themselves a little bit better. Um, you can see parents who can start to uh, respond differently to their children um, in ways that really support their children's development. Um, so, I mean, one of the work that I'm almost most involved with at this point in our health center is this um, therapy that we have with mothers and their young babies. So a lot of, you know, the children themselves are very, very young. The program is zero to three, um, started at zero to 24 months. So we were really working with, you know, very little babies and their caregivers. Um, so over the course of that work to and how we do that is we videotape the mothers and their babies playing together, and then we play back the video with the parent, and we look at it together. And it's a very strength-based approach, so we show the parent all the things that they're really doing well. Um, so see how when your baby looked at you and you smiled back, how happy that made her. Um, those types of th experiences make her feel so you know loved and understood. Um, and the parent goes, oh, yeah, I guess I, I see that. I guess I am doing that for my child, and it helps the parent feel good and confident in their parenting. Danny is somebody who's like championed our work at, and at Share Our Strength. We've been intensely focused on the child. How do you think about this issue of we've also got to support their, their parents? Well, I, I learned exactly that from my grandfather uh, because, you know, a lot of the work that he did, both with the Ounce of Prevention Fund, I also think with uh, an organization called Family Focus based in uh, Chicago yep. was to um, care for the family before the baby was born and to really support doulas uh, but to to understand that if you do believe that use it or lose it uh, as Emily said earlier uh, then why do we why do we take driving tests before we get a driver's license but we don't get any kind of training whatsoever before becoming a parent and it's true that there's a lot of instinctive, you know, instructions that come somehow in our wiring, but there's a lot of things that I think people would do if they only knew that they actually mattered to do. And so I don't have any question whatsoever that, that 
some type of support for the families who will then be bringing these children into the world um, is hugely would be hugely impactful. I've kind of been remiss in not even bringing this up, but how much uh, is food and, and nutrition an issue in the for the families that you see? It's a huge issue. Um, I would say housing. Housing is probably one of our biggest issues, and then food insecurity, but they're related. I mean, I've been, if I can tell a brief story, I've been working with a, a young mother. She's 18 years old. Um, I was working with her since she was pregnant. Um, she has a, you know, a young toddler now. Um, and she, I just saw her yesterday, and she had been, you know, has very little family support, even though her family lives close by. She's been kind of bouncing around to different shelters. And she told me that she just um, moved to a new shelter with her, um, you know, her boyfriend and their young child and how the shelter is more apartment style and now they have a kitchen and how thrilled she is to have a kitchen where she can cook for her family, that her son had been losing weight in the other shelter because she wasn't able to cook for him um, and how you know difficult that was and now she can finally cook for her family and feed for her family. I mean, I can't imagine having a young child and not having a kitchen, not having a place to, to feed them. So... Um, you know, those things are related, you know, adequate housing, having a place to be able to cook meals, access to, um, you know, healthy, nutritious food. Um, but yeah, we have, a, you know, we're lucky to have a kind of emergency food pantry we have at the clinic. Um, we connect people to food pantries in the community. Um, it never feels like enough. I mean, you know, when a parent comes to you and says they don't have enough food, and especially they don't have enough food to feed their young child, I mean, it's a very helpless feeling. So we can give them what we can give them in the moment, but you know, you know that that doesn't last very long. So it's you know huge. And again, your feeling of security and the stress that causes on parents, it's a tremendous need that we that we face. And Danny, as somebody who's probably brought more people into share our strength than almost any other human being I can think of, either because they've been inspired by you or because you've shown them the way or modeled the behavior. Um, what else do you think we could be doing to um, answer this, this call to, to, get in, to get engaged, to make a difference in the community? It's not a mistake that uh, Share Our Strength, which for me started as the notion of sharing your strength, that, you know, that there's a calling for each one of us over and beyond that thing that we do and that each one of us has a strength to share. That's, that's what really got me captivated, even before I, I think I understood the obvious connection between um, nutrition and brain development um, and, and early childhood. Believe me, it, it, it took me a while to figure that out. But what didn't take a while to figure out was the connection between food and love. And I think that um, you cannot rightly talk about um, nourishing without talking about nurturing. And I think that love and food are just completely inextricably linked. I, I, in my own childhood, I always loved to eat. And, you know, I was a husky kid, as they called them back then. And I was not supposed to... find that hard to believe. I was. I was <laughs> not supposed to have the extra snack or the extra portion or the second piece of bread with my sandwich. And as far as I was concerned, it all just felt like love was being withheld as opposed to food being withheld. And the reason I'm telling you that is that I think that when we talk about stressed parents leading to stressed kids um, and we talk about an absence of nourishment, we're also talking about an absence sometimes of nurturing. And mm. I'm sure that Dr. Chinitz would agree that 
the hug and the food are are they're just completely connected mm -hmm. and so i think that um hugging people and feeding people well is is part of this and i know that if you don't have enough money to to buy the food uh it doesn't take extra money to give the hug but it's it's this is hard stuff i don't I don't pretend to have the answers. As a business person, as an employer, I think a lot of this has instructed the way we look at um, at m both maternity and paternity leave, and a belief that uh, it's we should be as generous as we possibly can with time away, so that parents can develop those bonds with their with their newborn kids, and. I, I, once again, I can say just as an example to other business people living, uh, it comes back to pay us off handsomely because the the loyalty we get um, and the job satisfaction that we get from people who want to work for a company that, that understands that has, has been enormous. I'm so grateful to both of you. I learned a lot, as I knew I would, Dr. Emily Chinnitz, Center Thank for Child so Health and resilience That's right. <laughs> um, in the South Bronx uh, here in New York City. Danny Meyer, Union Square Hospitality Group, uh, and a longtime Share of Strength uh, champion, board member, colleague, and conspirator. Thank you both for being here. Thanks for being Thank part you. of Share Thank Your you. Strength. I hope you'll go to our website, shareourstrength.org slash passion, to discover how you can get involved to make a difference in your community. Add passion and stir. Big chefs, big ideas is the podcast from Share Our Strength. The Share Our Strength community believes that everyone can share in the global fight against hunger and poverty, and that in these shared strengths lie sustainable solutions. Today, Share Our Strength focuses these strengths on making no kid hungry a reality in America. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.